Want some news that you can use? Stop by the 10 News Studio and join hosts Ryan Willard and Pamela Kirkland every Wednesday. The 10 News team covers everything from Ukraine and the Supreme Court to Minecraft and Pokemon, all in a bite-sized podcast for kids and their adults. Awesome guests like Lego Masters Judge Amy Corbett, Dr. Anthony Fauci, and the voice of Pokemon's Ash Ketchum are guaranteed to swing by. So make the 10 News part of your family's routine to connect, explore, and learn something new. Listen to the 10 News on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. I'm not sure if you know this, but you are listening to The Past and the Curious. Oh, my name? It's Mick Sullivan, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 71. This episode features Harry Houdini, but it's not Harry Houdini who you think. I mean, it's the same Harry Houdini, but it's a Harry Houdini very early in his life, and he wants to quit. He's just done. Luckily, he did not. The other story is about a woman who is known now as Grandma Moses. Grandma Moses was a painter, a very famous painter in her day. She lived in the early part, or she was she worked, created most of her art in the early part of the 1900s, uh, but she was actually born during the Civil War, actually right before the Civil War. And uh, her professional career started at the age of 78. And it went on for like 25 years after that, which is amazing. She's amazing. I can't wait to tell you about her. So yeah, let's do this. It's easy to get down sometimes. Things can get frustrating. And sometimes it seems like you've got goals and dreams and hopes that you just can't reach. Not to mention talents that you just can't seem to make the most of. Everybody feels this way at some point. Some people even want to quit. In 1899, this is how Harry Houdini felt. He was 25 years old and had been on the road as a magician for years already. First, he had an act with a friend. They called themselves the Houdini Brothers. But they were not brothers. Inspired by French magician Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin, the young men chose the name Houdini. The other half of the act, an old pal of Harry's named Joseph Hyman, called himself J.H. Houdini and Harry might have taken the first name Harry in honor of another magic idol, Harry Keller. Or it could have been an Americanized version of his nickname, Eerie. No one is really sure, but both kind of make sense. Harry's real name was Eric Weiss. In any case, the name Harry Houdini certainly had more ring to it than J.H. Houdini, so it's little wonder why he became the famous one, at least eventually. When J.H. left the act, Harry's brother, Theo, joined for a while, and in need of a suitable stage name, he became known as Dash Houdini. Hmm. While they weren't really Houdinis, or Harry or Dash for that matter, at least these two were brothers. Harry's first professional engagement as a magician had been back in 1891. Of course, to try his hand at showbiz, he had to leave something a little more secure behind him. Before he was Harry Houdini, Eric Weiss had a few straight jobs, the last having been the assistant tie cutter 
assistant to the tie cutter, at a small factory that made neckties. In 1899, he was really struggling and might have been looking back on that life of cutting neckties, or at least assisting in the cutting of neckties, with some longing. The necktie paychecks were regular, and he didn't have to hold the attention of an audience with highly skilled and concentration-heavy prestidigitation. He just had to assist in the cutting of neckties, but he chose the life of magic. When he met his wife, Wilhelmina Beatrice, she joined the act in place of Dash. They dropped the brothers part of the act and just became the Houdinis. Also, she went by Bess, which rolled off the tongue a bit more easily than Wilhelmina Beatrice. Harry had an assortment of magic tricks that were impressive. But in the 1800s, the stages were already filled with magicians doing impressive stuff. And to be honest, a lot of them were doing more impressive stuff than the Houdinis. It took a lot to stand out. Their best trick was called the metamorphosis, and it went like this. Houdini would be handcuffed, tied in a big sack, and then locked inside of a large box, kind of like the steamer trunks used to carry clothing and other personal belongings for passengers across the ocean. Steamer trunk. Then his wife Bess would pull a curtain in front of the box, hiding it from view. In a matter of seconds, usually no more than three, one, two, three. The curtain would be dramatically thrust open again. Whoosh! Only Harry Houdini now stood where <gasps> Bess just had. Oh, but wait, there's more. When he opened the locked box, out popped a person wrapped in that same big sack. Once untied, none other than Bess would be revealed, and she was wearing the handcuffs that had been placed on Harry's wrists. <laughs> you got yes. It was awesome, no doubt. But that was just one part of their act, so the rest of their time on stage was filled with card tricks and the like. Eventually, Harry added more escapes to his act, since he seemed to have a knack for getting out of any set of handcuffs that people wrapped around his wrists. But just the same, after nearly a decade, it seemed like his career was going nowhere. Frustrated and tired, the couple actually took out an ad offering to sell their secrets, and even their amazing metamorphosis trick. Barely getting by was not satisfactory to Harry. It felt like it was time to quit. Maybe he thought about going back to neckties. Or maybe he dreamt of something else. Whatever was in his head, he was clearly done ready to hang up his magic career, sell it all, and walk on to something new. But before Harry and Bess could quit, they still had a few engagements to complete on their contracts in 1899. One night in Minnesota, a man named Martin Beck was in the audience. He had read about Houdini's recent visit to a police station in Chicago, where he wowed a crowd of 200 people by escaping from whatever handcuffs the cops put him in. So Martin came with a pair of his own and challenged Harry to get out. Harry was out of them before you could say abracadabra. Done. What's next? Okay. Martin knew talent when he saw it. He would help make the careers of Charlie Chaplin. Will Rogers, the Marx Brothers, and singer Sophie Tucker, just to name a few. And he wanted to make the career of Harry Houdini. But there was just one catch. Dump the magic, pal. You're never going to be tops. But you could be the greatest escape artist in the world. Focus on that. It was great advice. Before long, 
Thanks to the daring escapes from cuffs, crates, and street jackets, Harry and Bess were the top bill on vaudeville shows. They were adored in the press and beloved by the public everywhere they went. To prove how good he was and promote any upcoming shows, Harry would often visit the police station in the city where they were performing. And there, he'd escape from handcuffs and often do it completely naked. Why are you doing this? To prove I'm not cheating. You don't see any keys, right? Uh, well, we, we believe you. It's okay. You don't, you don't need to. Oh, okay. Well, here we go. These stunts would get press in the papers, which usually Harry would write himself under an assumed name. And then crowds would turn up even more enthusiastically to see the, now clothed, masterful escape artist. Eventually, he grew so famous that he decided to try his luck in Europe and become an international sensation. It started slowly, but after he escaped a pair of cuffs at the famous Scotland Yard in the blink of an eye, things picked up. The European tours lasted years and gave him the moment that perhaps most made him a legend. It was London in 1904 when a reporter from the Daily Illustrated Mail named Bennett showed up at a performance. Bennett wanted to be the one to stump the handcuff king and had found a man who had spent five years making a locking handcuff that no one could get out of. From the stage, Houdini often asked the audience if anyone happened to have some cuffs from which to escape. Knowing this would happen, Bennett had come to the show well prepared. The reporter stood up and held the one-of-a-kind cuffs up to Houdini. Houdini looked at them and refused. They're not regulation. At his answer, the audience <gasps> gasped. When pressed harder, he claimed that they would take more time to escape from than they had in the theater that night. He wasn't saying no, but he wasn't saying yes. Then the reporter addressed the crowd. I have just challenged Mr. Houdini to permit me to fasten these cuffs on his wrists. And Mr. Houdini declines. The audience was held in rapt attention now. Mr. Houdini, you claim to be the handcuff king. And if you refuse to put these on, my contention is that you are no longer entitled to use the words handcuff king. Well now, that bold assertion got Houdini's attention very quickly. But he was still not willing. Instead, he suggested that they do it a few days later. Bennett agreed and took his crazy constrictive cuffs with him. On March 17th, it was game on. 3,000 people crammed into the theater to watch the event. Houdini didn't feel too certain, and the reports say he didn't seem that way to the audience either. He told the crowd he didn't know what would happen, but whether he freed himself or not, he would give it his best shot. Once cuffed, he crawled inside of his tent and started to writhe about. This was how the act went. An audience would watch the little tent on stage for however long it took him to escape, unable to see what was going on inside. Perhaps he wanted them to use their imaginations. Perhaps he needed the privacy to work, or perhaps he was just really careful with his secrets. Either way, the crowd silently watched and wondered about what was going on in the tent for about 20 minutes, until he emerged. They began to clap, until they saw that he was still cuffed. 
Well, that was disappointing. Turns out, Houdini needed to get a better look at the cuffs under the stage lights. After doing so, he went back in. A few minutes later, he came out! Still cuffed. His knees hurt. So, Bennett gave him a pillow and sent him back in. The audience was still watching and wondering, staring at this tent. Bess grew so nervous that she had to leave. Another 20 minutes later, he came back out, still cuffed. He was hot, and he wanted to take off his jacket. He asked if they could, you know, take the cuffs off, let him remove his jacket, and then put the impossible cuffs back on. Bennett refused. Then he might get a clue as to how they worked. Very well, Houdini responded. He then somehow managed to get a pocket knife out of his jacket. He opened it with his teeth, and then, while still wearing cuffs, he began to shred his jacket. And minutes later, it was nothing more than a messy pile of scraps at his feet. Now jacketless, he went back into the tent. And ten minutes later, he reappeared again. But this time, he was free of the cuffs, which he held in his hand. The crowd went wild, eventually crashing the stage and hoisting him on their shoulders in celebration of the incredible escape. Houdini did it. He did it! Yeah, he did it. Houdini! Was he really that good with locks? So good that in a little over an hour, he could pick his way out of a set that a master locksmith had spent five years perfecting? Or did he actually just set the whole thing up and dupe everyone? Or was he really magic? Well, we all know the last option is wrong. Beyond that, we have no answers. No one ever figured it out. The only thing that we do know is that this made him a legend. And for the rest of his life, which ended prematurely in 1926, he was known as the greatest escape artist on earth. And whatever the case, he deserved and earned that title. His showmanship and incredible abilities made him a star, brought him wealth, and made him a household name, even nearly 100 years after his death. There was never a guarantee that Houdini was going to reach his goals, but none of that would have happened if he had quit and sold it all back in 1899. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health 
Streaming now. This month's You Have 30 Seconds comes from Elizabeth, who's going to tell us about the origin of her town's name. If I'm not mistaken, this is in Pennsylvania. Hello, my name is Elizabeth, and I'm going to tell you about the origin of my town's name. The Native Americans called the water Swickley, that ran from maple trees, meaning sweet water. Swickley was a former village of the Shawnee. The streams were called Swickley. Now we know them as Little and Big Swickley Creeks. The name Swickleyville was decided in 1840. Now we know Swickleyville as Swickley. Over the years, Swickley has gone through so many names. Very cool. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. I love hearing origin stories. I love learning about names and I love hearing about everyone's town. What a great submission. Thank you for your research and thank you for sending it in. If anyone else out there would like to submit a You Have 30 Seconds, all you got to do is record something. Tell me a story. Tell me about somebody from the past or tell me the origin of your town's name. I love it. Thank you very much. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. That's right, it's quiz time, and here's the first question. The woman in our next story, at one point in her life, painted something on her wall and a few other parts of her house. And, you know, that's nothing new. People have been painting on walls forever. In fact, in 1969, ancient stone slabs were found in Namibia with paintings that people had made thousands of years before. That art is some of the oldest. Actually, I think it is the oldest of its kind anywhere on the continent of Africa. And it just so happened that their discovery occurred at the same time as NASA's successful mission to the moon. So those slabs are named in honor of that mission. If that's the case, what are they called? They are known as the Apollo 11 stones because they were first located as so much of the world was watching the first successful moon landing. Something that probably seemed impossible to many in the decades and centuries just before that. This art was created with charcoal and ochre and was luckily preserved through the ages so an archeologist could find it as the team's shortwave radio blasted the news that humans were walking around on the moon. All right, question number two. Unlike the subject of the next story, Mary Cassatt was a painter who came from a very wealthy family who didn't really support her desire to be a painter. She eventually became one of the most famous painters of the 1800s, but in 1871, some of her paintings were destroyed in what is often remembered as a bovine-related incident in America's Midwest. What destroyed her paintings? Was it Mrs. O'Leary's cow that started the Great Chicago Fire? Was it careless workers? Or was it a meteor? No one seems to agree. But we know the devastating fire destroyed much of Chicago's business district in 1871, including the jewelry store where the up-and-coming painter Mary Cassatt had many of her paintings on display at the time. The artworks, like many other things that fateful day, were reduced to nothing more than ash. While they'd probably be worth a fortune today, perhaps the greater loss is that the art world just lost something so important. Okay, here's the third and final question. Painter Vincent Van Gogh created over 800 works of art in his lifetime and is one of the most famous painters in history. How many paintings did he sell during his lifetime? He sold one, or maybe two. There are some conflicting reports. And if you count his drawings, yeah, maybe he sold a few more works of art. But the point is, 
He was not successful during his lifetime. He struggled tremendously and ignored a lot in order to focus on painting. Today, his paintings are some of the most popular in the world. But in his lifetime, most considered him to be a failed artist. Just goes to show you, sometimes everybody gets it wrong. One day in 1938, a man named Louis Calder was passing through the upstate New York town of Hoosnick Falls. Not far from the Vermont border and the beautiful Green Mountains, Lewis was a few hundred miles away from his home of New York City. He was a civil engineer who worked with the water department and who happened to enjoy driving the New York State countryside. On a whim, he decided to stop at Thomas's Drugstore, a small shop he passed. Where am I again? Who's Nick Falls? What's Nick? No, who's Nick? Who's Nick? I, I don't know any Nicks. Well, anyway, it sure is a nice store you got here. I'm gonna have a look around. This store was not a typical drugstore because along with the usual medicine and soda fountain and other goods, there were also jams and jellies and butters and other things that were made by a few locals. Louis passed over all of that though because he was struck by something else hanging for sale. Paintings. He loved art and was an avid collector. Never had he seen anything quite like what he saw in Thomas's drugstore though. In particular, four paintings captivated him. Lively scenes of towns and farms that seemed to be bursting with little people and animals and buildings, all spread out over a great distance but still somehow contained on the small board that they were painted onto. He asked about the artworks and learned that they were painted by a local woman, Anna Mary Robertson Moses. He also learned that they had been hanging there for about a year without much interest. Without batting an eye, he bought all four and then asked the shopkeeper if they'd help him find the woman because he wanted to buy more. Hoosnick Falls was a small town, and tracking her down was not difficult. He had to wait for her to get back home, but when she finally arrived, Lewis came face to face with the 78-year-old woman who would soon become one of America's most famous painters. After getting to know the lady in the farmhouse, Lewis bought 10 more of her paintings and then headed back to New York, brimming with excitement for who he had just met and what she had painted. Anna Mary Robertson Moses was probably perplexed by the man from the city who had practically flipped for the paintings that she made to entertain herself. But she was happy to sell so many of her paintings, it made room for her to paint more. She may have even thrown in a jar of homemade jelly to sweeten the deal. Anna Mary Robertson was born in 1860, on the eve of the American Civil War in rural New York. During the modest amount of schooling she received, her teachers clearly recognized her knack for creating, but she would never have any formal art training. Her father helped how he could. He liked to create himself when time allowed, but the farming family didn't have a lot of extra money, especially considering the 10 children that filled the home. So when he was looking for a treat or a surprise for the kids, he figured paper, pencils, and paint would last longer than candy. And whenever she ran out of the paint that he bought and was still feeling the urge to create, she made her own from fruits and vegetables and other ingredients that she had handy. But a relatively carefree childhood ended pretty early for people like Anna. At 12, she had to leave home and go to work for some wealthier farmers in the area. And for the next 15 years, she handled farm tasks inside and outside of homes for several wealthy families. 
In her 20s, she met another hired worker named Robert Salmon Moses. At 27, they married, she took his name, and the newlyweds moved to Staunton, Virginia. The Shenandoah Valley is a beautiful place of lush forests and dramatic mountains, and Anna Mary Moses loved it. Many years later, she would use those memories to inspire her art. But for now, life was challenging and often difficult. They worked together on a handful of farms before finally saving up enough money to buy some land and a home of their own. They also began a family, but sadly only five of their ten children would survive infancy. To make ends meet when times were lean, she would make potato chips and churn butter to sell. In 1905, they sold the farm and moved back to New York State, where they bought another piece of land. Again, they struggled to make ends meet, but led productive lives and found joy where they could. There wasn't much time for art, sadly, as the rigors of farm life and parenthood took their tolls on Anna Mary's schedule. It's not like she quit, she just didn't have time. But occasionally, the necessities of farm life and her latent artistic talent would line up. Her earliest known painting is from 1918. While hanging wallpaper in the living room of the farmhouse, she ran out of material a little too soon, leaving her without enough wallpaper to cover the fireboard. Fireboards were a common fixture in homes of the time. During warmer months of the year, it was common to seal the fireplace off, both for insulation and to keep random critters who belong outside from making special appearances inside your home. Often, people would cover the hearth with a board during these times. Being the resourceful lady that she was, Mary Moses found some house paint and covered the fireboard in a mural instead. A beautiful landscape of trees and mountains would adorn the home for decades. She probably never imagined that it would eventually wind up in a museum. The inspiration probably came from the memory of watching her father paint something similar on the walls of her childhood home. Her husband died in 1927, and a few years later, Mary turned the farm over to her son and moved to Vermont to care for her daughter, who had become ill with tuberculosis. Knowing how much Mary liked art, her daughter showed her a picture that someone had created from wool yarn and suggested that the now 72-year-old Mary give it a try. The little girl that she had been in the schoolhouse 60-something years before was still alive in Mary's heart. Before long, she had mastered the art technique and became so committed to it that her family thought that her new hobby might be taking a little too much of her attention and time. When her hands and wrists began to ache so badly that she had to stop, it saddened her. So her sister suggested that she paint instead. And so, in her mid-70s, the woman transformed into an artist. She painted nearly every day, and when her right hand ached from the work, she would switch hands and paint with the left while the other hand rested. Mary Moses treasured her memories, even the sad ones. She said, you don't get to be an old woman without having some sad memories and knowing some ugly things. But I don't believe in painting ugliness. If people can't get pleasure out of a painting, what's the use in painting it, she once said. It was a far cry from the artists of her day. People like Pablo Picasso and Salvador Dali were challenging how art should be created and approached. Mary painted her memories, scenes of mountain towns at Thanksgiving or maple syrup festivals, or of notable buildings like the old checkered house, which was just a giant red and white checkered building that dated back to the American Revolution. The art world likes labels, and many have been given to her approach. Folk art is common, and I think that's a cool one. 
but I think the terms naive or primitive art feel a bit unflattering. It makes her seem like she didn't know what she was doing, and as America soon learned, she sure did. Other people call it outsider art, and I think that's the most fitting. As a farmer in a small town, she was clearly outside of the art world mainstream, and more notably, she was not trained, she just created in her own world. And she was in her 70s when she really got cooking. Her sprawling landscapes and busy scenes hung on the walls of friends and family. Instead of baking cake for the postman at Christmas, she painted him a picture. She loved to paint so much that she had to give them away to make room for more, which is why the sale of 14 paintings to Lewis Calder was probably very exciting. But the excitement went beyond that. He told her how much he loved her paintings, how unique her perspective was, and that he would do whatever he could do to show her art to the world. He believed that she could be famous. She wasn't so sure. Plus, she liked her life as a grandmother who painted in her retirement. There's a pretty famous museum in New York City called the Museum of Modern Art. People in the know like to abbreviate it and call it by its initials, the MoMA. And if you have your art on display at the MoMA, well, let's just say that's a really big deal. In 1939, Pablo Picasso's masterpiece, Guernica, was on display at the MoMA. Also on display at that very same time, in a special MoMA exhibit dedicated to unknown artists, were three paintings by Mary Moses. And if that wasn't enough to surprise the farm-dwelling lady, a few months later, she had a solo show in New York City of dozens of her paintings. And faster than a critter can crawl down a chimney, Mary Moses became pretty famous. A retired grandmother with no formal art training was quickly becoming one of the most popular artists in America. And at this time, she became known to the public as Grandma Moses. Beyond her art, people were simply charmed by her. She was just as ready to talk about the jams she made as the paintings she painted whenever she sat down for an interview. Grandma Moses was in Time Magazine, appeared on television, had tea with the president, and to show you how important her paintings were, one of the most important musicians in history, a songwriter named Cole Porter, traveled with a Grandma Moses original and hung it above the piano wherever he happened to be staying. And not long after, Hallmark, the company that made greeting cards a large business in America, began printing her works on cards, meaning that anyone and everyone could have a Grandma Moses somewhere in their homes. There are very few artists who were in more places at that time than Grandma Moses. Her memories brought people a feeling that they might have known or only heard about. By the 1930s, the cities and even towns were filled with cars and wires and electricity and technology of all sorts. But you would find none of that in her paintings. They reminded people of the times before technology dominated lives, which was only a generation or so before this moment. Today, it seems like another world, but to the people who lived alongside Grandma Moses, it was a world that many people could still remember. Until her death at the age of 101, she painted, and she ultimately left behind 1,500 works of art. The largest collection is in Vermont, but her works are all over, both in private collections and in important museums. All of this is because she just kept painting. 1,500 works is a lot of art for anyone to produce, but especially for an artist who didn't really get started until her 70s. 
Despite the distraction of responsibilities and life's challenges, Grandma Moses is someone who never gave up on what she loved. Thank you so much for listening. This has been The Past and the Curious. My name is Mick Sullivan, and I have some thank yous to get through. Uh, Solomon Gutride, you re-upped your Patreon membership, and I appreciate that greatly. Thank you so much, and hello again to you. I hope things are well in your world. Yes! Um, also, in Austin, Texas, which is a very cool place, and I have spent some time there, Charlotte and Leo, Charlotte, age 10, Leo, age 6, wish you all the best. I'm so glad that you are out there listening. I got a very nice note from your grown-up, and I just think it's so cool that you are there listening right now. And I'm saying hi to you here, right now. How about that? And uh, last but not least, um, there is a crew in Charlottesville, which is one of my favorite places. Uh, and uh, there's a birthday for this Charlottesville crew. Hello to everyone in Charlottesville, by the way. Shout out. Uh, maybe someday down the road I can do a visit to Charlottesville because I go through occasionally. Anyway, Tommy, uh, it is your birthday, I believe today, depending on when you listen to this, but I am releasing this episode on your birthday. And um, I know that you recently went to Alaska and heard some other cool things about you. And I made up a really silly song that um, I don't know where it came from. It just, that's what happened. I did it. And here you go. Happy birthday, Tommy. So, happy birthday, Tommy! <laughs> and thank you all to everyone out there. That was, I guess, my my morning jacket jam. Uh, that's a band from here in Louisville, and I know some of the guys. And so that's where that song came from, I guess. So anyway, thank you all, everyone. My name is Mick Sullivan. This has been The Past and The Curious. <laughs> <laughs>